The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and 1077 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And this was also a busy week in technology. A man lost the password to his Bitcoin wallet. That's his a bad Bitcoins thing. Bitcoins are worth $220 million. Wow. And he only has two more attempts to try to log in, and then the hard drive will self-destruct. Oh, that's bad. That is bad news. Elon Musk saying people get off WhatsApp, go to Signal. WhatsApp shares too much of your data with Facebook, and he's just fed up with Facebook and all these guys that get our data and sell it. Well, it's too late. Once you're there, you're there, right? I know, you're stuck. But you can always try to reclaim yourself and rebuild your privacy going forward. Tim Berner-Lee is trying to start a company that's going to help us solve the privacy problem because it is a huge, huge problem. There was an MIT professor who was charged with hiding work with China. And he was, uh, you know, arrested by, by the feds. The Chinese have been trying to infiltrate our universities. And this is an example that might be uh, worth noting. Wikipedia celebrates its 20th anniversary. We'll go back and talk a bit about Wikipedia and where they're going. This week we're going to feature John Mouchley. John Mouchley, he's, uh, he's a man who, uh, who along with uh, Peter Eckert, developed the first general purpose electronic digital computer, the ENIAC. And because of various shenanigans, he (laughs) actually never got the patent for the ENIAC. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Yes, we got an email from Bob of Maryland, a longtime listener. Dear uh, Doc, Jim, and the furtive. Furtive, Furtive. Mr. Big Voice. Oh, my. Yes. I just stumbled onto this amazing hybrid insect electronic device, the Smellicopter. Researchers put a living antenna on a drone to give the machine an insanely keen sense of smell. The system monitors the electrical signal sent from the antenna of the actual device, allowing the drone to lock in on the source of a scent and navigate toward it. The antennas from a hawk moth, uh, uh, from a hawk moth, the Monduka Sexta. What do you think? All, all the best from your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. I um. Well, Bob, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, that was a great idea. That was a great article, and this 
smellicopters a great idea. I think I think Jim actually has some some footage I of, do. The hel- I, of the uh, smellicopter. I kind of misunderstood this. I thought it was a mix between a helicopter and a uh, and a bug zapper. But here's what it would sound like if it did exactly <laughs> it actually exist. There there it goes. It's in flight. It's got it's got to get to the the oh, yeah. the, uh, the mosquitoes first. But it's about there. It's honing in. You know the bug, the bug zapper must have gotten it because of that 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 moth antenna. <laughs> yeah, it did. It did. It found it. it, it just imagine it would p- patrol your yard and just look for mosquitoes. Wow. Well, this thing actually works. Uh, it it actually hones in. I saw some footage of it. Actually, hones in on the smell. It turns out that moth antenna are very sensitive in in picking up smell. Just one molecule. Uh, is enough to trigger an electrical signal, and then it's amplified dramatically. And so these antennas are extremely sensitive. Now the problem is, once they cut the antenna off from the moth, it only lives for four hours. Wow! So they have to keep every four hours putting, you know, putting on more antenna. But the uh, <laughs> uh, so I don't know how practical this is going to be in the long term. But yeah. I thought the smellicopter was a very interesting idea. All kinds of applications, <laughs> I think. We got an email from Jim Tilton in Bowie, Maryland. Hi, Dr. Schertz. Uh, I got another another Windows update this week, and it caused my problem to re- reappear. Jim wrote an email last week. It turns out every time he gets an update, he plugs his earphones into his laptop, and then he wants to use the laptop mic. As soon as he plugs in the earphones, the mic stops working because it thinks there's a built-in mic with the earphones. Right. And so it just stops working, and he can't use it. And then he, he So then he goes back, he works on it, and he finally gets it going again. So there was another update, and he was beside himself. So he, the, the amazing thing is he called uh, Microsoft, and they started chatting with him. And they went through the whole rigmarole with him again, and uh, he was on the phone quite a while with them and they and they helped him reinstall his windows 10 operating system it took about three hours so jim said uh, he reinstalled it and now the problem's gone it was a clean install so apparently maybe some of the device drivers or something weren't correct he did a clean install and it fixed the problem so that's great news jim but for me the real news is that microsoft actually helped you yeah that is that's that's the headline that's the headline. And the guy chatted with them and he said, look, if you've got any problems, here's a link. You can come right back to me and you don't have to wait in line to get with me. And uh, I mean, I'm actually impressed that they stuck with Jim because Jim's computer is an older computer and it's really hard to get uh, <clears throat> Windows to work on legacy systems. So they could have said, look, it's a legacy system, just get a new computer. But I- they stuck with him until the problem was solved. I'm so, surprised. Kudos to Microsoft. I'm actually surprised that Jim got that kind of response. I'm surprised that this isn't the response that he got. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. You know, yeah, that's that's right? what I would have expected. That's exactly what I would have expected. We got an email. We got an email from John in Baltimore. Dear Tech Talk, I recently bought an HP laptop running Windows 10, and it keeps the wrong time. It's always an hour behind. Now, if I change the correct time, it just reverts back to the wrong time all on its own when I go back the next day. Do you think it might be a bad CMOS battery or maybe a bad motherboard? I'd like to get this fixed while my machine is still under warranty, John, in Baltimore. Well, John, the problem is most certainly not a hardware problem since it keeps consistent, although incorrect time, all the time. 
I suspect that when you set up your original operating system, when the machine was new, that you picked out the wrong time zone. And, uh, and so, you know, when you're going through the installation, it says, what time zone are you in? I suspect you picked the wrong time zone. So here's what you want to do to fix this. Just boot up your PC in Windows, right-click on the display in the lower right-hand corner of the screen, and then click on Adjust Time and Date. You know, Adjust Time and Date. And uh, you're basically right-clicking on the time and date down in the lower right-hand corner, and just click on adjust time and date and then what you want to do you want to toggle off set time zone automatically so you can set the time zone um, uh, manually this automatic time zone setting is useful if you're traveling and you're you know you change your computer time zone although i i turned it off in my case because when i travel i want to be on local time so when i set up meetings they're set up correctly mm-hmm. um and then you just select the time zone for your location from the drop-down menu in the center of the screen. Uh, make sure that you put down adjust for daylight savings time automatically. And then uh, exit the date and time utility. And that ought, to be, that ought to be all you have to do to fix this problem. And best of luck with that. We got an email from Azra in Fredericksburg. Dear Doc and Jim, I'd like to set up my own YouTube channel. I got a Mac. I've got an iPhone 10 and an iPad. How can I monetize the site? What do you suggest for my first action should be Azra and Fredericksburg? Well, actually, as we're setting up a YouTube channel, it becomes a popular thing these days because people are making real money. There's some boy, young boy, nine-year-old. He just All he does is unbox toys. His parents take videos of him. He's, his channel makes $30 million a year. Can, if you can imagine that. What, and there's a, another uh, case of a woman. I re- she just speaks in Vietnamese. She's just everyday life in America. She speaks in Vietnamese. The first year she made $100,000. This is the fourth year of her channel. She's going to make $800,000. So people are making real money on YouTube channels. So I can see why you're kind of interested. It should be a fun project. Now, it's got to be something that's a passion of yours. You know, you, you, you know, because you're going to have to be making videos over and over and over again. So you want something that's a passion that you're really serious about. Now, what you want to do is you need a Gmail address first. So you're going to have to set up your Gmail account. I'd suggest you get a, a Gmail, a Gmail account that has something to do with your channel. And, and that Gmail account would be just used with the channel. Now, log into YouTube with your new Gmail account and click on the little uh, your little um uh, account circle up in the right that it could have a picture in it if you if you put a picture in it and um, and then uh, you can you can then uh, click on your channel and then it'll ask you to set up a channel to create a channel so it'll create a channel now if you want to get a brand account that means you want a channel which has a different name than your YouTube account you can you can do that and so you can uh, you can create a brand account. You can make you can give your YouTube channel a name which is different than your email account. And when you set that up, uh, Google will say, "Okay, we'd like you to fill out a few things." You'll have to put a thousand word description of what your channel will be. So you need kind of a good idea of what you want to do. Now, Google also has what they call playlists in uh, YouTube channels. So, like, if you go to somebody's channel, you don't just want to randomly, you know, pick start picking videos. So, 
the uh, YouTube uh, operators, they'll take a bunch of videos, they'll put them all together in a playlist, so a user can come in and just pick a playlist and all those videos just play one after another after another, just like an audio playlist. And so you want to pick out a few playlists that are relevant to the kind of videos that you're going to ma be making. And you can describe each play playlist, in this case, was up to 5,000 words. So that's setting up the channel. But now you don't have any content. So now you've got to get some content. And that's the, that's the big job. Now, your iPhone is a perfect camera for setting up a, a, uh, a YouTube channel. It's a great camera. Now... Uh, I would recommend, though, that when you take videos, you use the uh, the main camera, not the selfie camera, the camera on the back of the phone, because you've got three lenses. You've got wide field of view, narrow field of view, and medium field of view. And with those three lenses, you got more. You've got higher resolution too. You can take better. You can take better videos. Now, the YouTube channel is they're all organized uh, as landscape. In other words, you got to turn the photo on the side. If you Take your videos with the phone vertically, you're just going to get the middle third of the screen showing the video. If you want to fill the entire screen in the YouTube channel, you have to turn your phone sideways and run in the landscape mode. Now, here's the most important thing when you set up your, your YouTube channel and you need video. Uh, you need videos. You've got to have good sound. Uh, you see, you could watch really a crummy video if it has good sound. You could have a great video, and if it has bad sound, you just can't stand to watch it. You've got to have good sound. And it turns out that even that while the iPhone has a great camera, it does not have a very good microphone. And when you get more than three feet away from the camera, the sound is just not very good. You pick up a lot of wind noise. So you're going to need an external mic to the yep. iPhone. Yep. Now, I would suggest you get a, a, a wireless mic. Uh, a lavalier that you just, you know, put in your collar. And I, I looked around, and you, they, they're, 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 the prices are all over the place, from $60 up to $300. I sort of picked one out for you in the mid-range. The Movo WMX1, 1.24 gigahertz wireless microphone, it's $119. It's got a 200-foot 200, 200 range, and you can plug... Uh, the receiver into the iPhone, and then you can plug the transmitter into the lavalier microphone, and you'll have great sound. You can walk around, and you could have videos where you're walking toward the camera, away from the camera. That would be a great a great option. Now, they did have, Movo did have a, a, a wireless mic where the one unit, the receiver, just plugs right into the cell phone. But a lot of people didn't like it because they had to take the cell phone cover off for it to work. And also... It was limited to only the cell phone. You couldn't. It's like you couldn't plug it into a uh, a camera, you know, which which would take movies. And and I'm thinking that if this really takes off for you, you'll probably end up getting a dedicated camera. And this particular unit would work for a dedicated camera. Now, because you're going to be wanting to take photos from the other side of the of the camera, you're not going to really when you're when you've got the camera mounted on a tripod, you can't see yourself because the, the picture's on the other side. So there's a great little app that you can use. And you say you've got an iPad, which is perfect. It's called the Filmic Pro Remote Control Camera Kit. Filmic, F-I-L-M-I-K, Remote Control Camera Kit. And so what that does, uh, you install the Remote Control Pro on your iPhone and 
And the remote control, uh, filmic, the filmic uh, remote on your iPad. And then you can link the two together. You can either link with, uh, with, the, with the Wi-Fi in your house, or if you're out and about outside, it'll do a peer-to-peer Wi-Fi uh, linking, and you don't have to be around a, a Wi-Fi signal that you would have in your home. So the nice thing is then what the camera sees, you see on your iPad. So you can, you can set the picture up perfectly, and you can turn the camera on, turn the camera off. You can set which lens you want, narrow field of view, wide field of view, medium field of view. You can set all the image things here. And if you want, if somebody's helping you, they could hold the iPad, and they would be like the director, and they, they could run the thing. So with that, that Filmic Pro remote camera kit, which includes both the remote as well as the camera, it's $19.99 if you download it from Apple, and it is just a nice little application. I really like it. Now, when you're outside, you're not going to need lighting, probably. Um, for, but when you're inside, you will need a light. And these selfie rings are pretty good. These LED selfie rings are pretty good. And you can get, they have different uh, color temperatures, so you can set them. So there's a 12-inch selfie ring. It comes with a tripod. You've got to have a tripod. They can get from Walmart for $35. So I'd say for your indoor videos, get that selfie ring. Then uh, <clears throat> you're going to want to get a, um, a tripod for the camera that has a mount that will hold your, hold your um, iPhone horizontally. And, and I, I, just walked, I just went down to Walmart. I was kind of interested in it. For $35, you get really a nice, nice tripod with, with that kind of mount. So... You're, you're, you're pretty much set now. You could, you could put your camera up on your tripod on the inside. You could turn on your selfie light, and then you could use the, your iPad to control the camera. And so you could take self, and then you have your wireless mic where you're linking to the camera, which means you don't have to be within three feet of the camera, and your sound will be so much better. Or you could go outside and take some great, uh, great videos. If you have somebody else, suppose, turn the camera off, on, turn it off, and you could you could actually operate uh, quite nicely that way. Now, what what you're going to find out is you can't you cannot monetize your site until you have a thousand users and you have 400 hours of view time in a year. Once you do that, you can request YouTube to place ads on your YouTube channel and and they you share in the revenue. You get two thirds of the revenue and. And Google gets uh, one-third of the revenue. So, <clears throat> oh, the one other thing that you may want to get is a green screen. With the green screen, uh, you, you can add a background to, to, the pic, to yeah. your video after the fact. You know, like if you watch the, uh, the weather on TV, he's standing in front of a green screen, and they're simply putting the weather map D digitally putting the weather map behind him, but but there's nothing behind him, behind him except a green, the green screen. But here's so the important can, thing about yeah. green screens. Don't wear green when you're standing in front of a green screen. That is exactly right. If you wear green, your body will be but invisible. You, you'll be a head and hands, and that's it. Yeah, you'll be a head and hands. So with the green screen, you, you basically, if you're on the inside, then you can put any picture you want behind you. Just hang that from the ceiling. And, um, and just, you could, you could put a curtain rod, hang it from the ceiling. Then that's, that's dirt cheap. And you could get, you could just get the green screen material. It only be about 35 bucks. Now, the final thing you need for this project, you've got to be able to edit your videos. Okay. 
and it turns out that you've got the perfect laptop for you've got a Mac in the in the iMovie uh, video editing application that Apple has is a great one for beginners. You can basically, you can drag your videos together on a timeline. You can splice them together. You can add title screens. You can add writing. You, you can put in a series of, um, of, of stills and you can just put them on the timeline and then you can put in music and then you can overlay on top of that voice so you can make a, a slideshow into a movie. It has all of that. Plus, if you've, if you've got green screen, you, you, you can just drop the picture in. It will, iMovie will automatically put in your picture behind you in place of the green screen. It's intuitive to use. It's, uh, it you know, comes with the Mac. So I'd recommend iMovie. So you've got everything you need. And if you, if you take the wireless mic, the tripods and the um, and the uh, selfie light um, and the uh, the application Filmic Pro. You're spending less than 250k to get started, but I think you will have a lot of fun with that. And I wish you the best of luck. And when you finally get your channel set up, tell me what the name of it is, and I'll go back and take a look at it. Listen, we love your emails. Yep. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2. If you're listening in Loudoun County, it's 104.5 FM. In southwest of Washington, you can hear us on 1077 FM HD 2. We'll be back in a minute. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature John William Motchley. John William Motchley is an American physicist who, along with J. Presper Eckert, designed ENIAC, the first general-purpose electronic digital computer. John Motchley was born August 30th, 1907 in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
When John was eight, his family moved to Chevy Chase, Maryland. So he's a lucky boy, local boy yeah. here in, uh, in, in D.C. His father was head of a section of the terrestrial elect electricity at the Carnegie Institute of Washington, in D.C. That's funny. I need to pay my terrestrial electricity bill. Thank you. Thank you for the reminder. Yes, that was the, that's in the old days, wasn't it? Terrestrial yes. electricity. <laughs> <laughs> now, as a youth. Marchley loved science, and he particularly liked electricity. And as a teenager, he had all pick up all kinds of odd jobs fixing his neighbor's electric systems. He, if anybody had anything broken, he'd want to go for it. And that's the kind of work that he liked. He graduated from McKinley Technical High School in downtown Washington, D.C. Now, at McKinley, Marchley was active at the, on the debate team. He was a member of the National Honor Society, and he became editor-in-chief of the school's newspaper, Tech Life. In 1925, he got a scholarship to study engineering at John Hopkins University. But after only two years, he got fed up with uh, engineering, and he decided to go into a real field. So he transferred to the physics department. <laughs> and without completing his bachelor's degree, he enrolled directly into the Ph.D. program, and he received a Ph.D. in physics from John Hopkins in 1932. In uh, that same year, he was accepted. Uh, uh, he accepted a teaching position at Ursinus College in Philadelphia. Now, from 32 to 33, he served at a as a uh, research assistant at John Hopkins, where he calculated energy levels of the formaldehyde spectrum. And uh, and then uh, actually it was in '33 that he went to Ursinus College and he was appointed and he was appointed he was head of the physics department at Ursinus College. That's the good news. I can see the bad how news he, is there uh -huh. was only one staff member in the department. Well, it's easy to be the head when it's a department of one. That's right. <laughs> I can see why you're interested in this guy. One, yeah, physics <laughs> and two, he fixed electrical things as a kid. And you didn't you rewire your parents' kitchen? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did. I like I like to play with terrestrial electricity too. I can tell. <laughs> okay, in '36, uh, Mochley accepted a a, jo uh, a a job as assistant physicist at the Carnegie Institute to analyze meteorological data. Now there was a lot of computer work there, so that actually stimulated his interest in computing in computation. Now, in the summer of 1941, he took a defense training course for electronics at the University of Pennsylvania Moore School of, of Electrical Engineering. While he was there taking that course, he met the lab instructor, Jay Eckhart, Jay Presper Eckhart, and they formed a long-standing partnership. Now, following the course, Mochley was hired as an instructor of electrical engineering there at, um, there at the Moore School of uh, Electrical Engineering. And in 1943, he was promoted to assistant professor of E. He got the idea of making a high-speed electronic uh, computer using flip-flop circuits, flip-flop circuits that were used in cosmic ray counting devices. He'd seen those flip-flop circuits in action at Swarthmore College. And he said, well, why don't we use these flip-flop circuits? And they would either be on or off, symbolizing uh, a bit that's either on or off. So we thought, why don't we make a, an electronic computer using flip-flop circuits? So he wrote a uh, proposal to the uh, Army. He gave it to Lieutenant Herman Goldstein. 
and they proposed a um, an elect a high-speed electronic uh, computer to solve some of the pro uh, problems that the army had in ca calculating ballistic trajectories. Okay, in April of 1943, the Army contracted with the Moore School to build the electronic numerical integrator and computer. That's where ENIAC comes from, electronic numerical integrator and computer. I, you know, I wonder now, where they came from. Yeah. Now, Modulli led the conceptual design, while Eckhart led the hardware engineering on the ENIAC. It was a thousand times faster than the than the current methods they had for calculating trajectories. It could do 357 10-digit multiplications in one second, which at that time was lightning fast. Now they froze the design of the ENIAC in 1944 to start doing construction. Then they planned to build a second computer called the EDVAC. Now, at that time, John von Neumann learned of the project, and, and he analyzed the ENIAC. He wrote a report, draft report, first draft of a report on, on EDVAC. Oh, yeah, he, uh, he came back. He was going to write on the EDVAC before it was actually built. Now, dated June 30, 1945, it was, an, it was a written account of the general purpose stored computer co computing machine, EDVAC. And John von Neumann wrote it. And if you, uh, but prior to that, paper being published, Goldstein, who also had John von Neumann under contract, removed Eckhart and Mochley's name. So John von Neumann wrote the report, and Eckhart and Mochley got no credit for the work. Mm. And then Goldstein distributed that document widely to all of von Neumann's associates. That paper defined the von, the von Neumann architecture. And because the von Neumann architecture that was outlined in the paper that was described in the EDVAC, Ed, EDVAC was published before he applied for a patent. His a patent was denied because they said the von Neumann architecture predated that patent, even though <laughs> that was his idea in the paper. Uh, so they was uh, they weren't very happy about that uh, losing that patent. Then the Moore School of engineering, they said, wait a minute here, this computer stuff, this might make us a lot of money. So they changed their patent policy, and they said if any of the professors invent something while they're working at the Moore School, the Moore School of Engineering owns the patents. At that point, Eckhart and Mochley resigned. They said, well, enough's enough. We already lost the first patent because of the uh, Goldstein, because of the, of the, um, of the um, contract administrator. We're not going to lose our other patents because the Moore School wants them. So they formed the Eckhart Mochley Computer Corporation, EMCC. Mochley was president. They then secured a contract with the National Bureau of Standards to build EDVAC II, uh, which later became a machine that I'm sure you've heard of, Jim, Univac. Yes. We've discussed Univac ad infinitum yeah, here, have we not? We have. So Univac was the first computer designed specifically for business application. And it, it had many technical advantages, including, uh, at that time, something truly innovative, magnetic tape for mass storage. Now, Moxley, however, believed that language, computer language, was really important if you wanted to make these useful. So he hired uh, Grace Murray, Murray Hopper, 
to develop a compiler for the UNIVAC. Now, you know, you take computer language, then you got to convert it into machine language, and then you feed the zeros and ones into the computer. And the program that converts the computer language to the machine language is called a compiler. And Grace Murray Hopper invented the compiler. And we've featured her before. So they actually hired the compiler pioneer to write the compiler for the UNIVAC. Now, the problem is... Did they know at that point, you know, how important she was? I guess they did. Well, they knew that she'd written a compiler. I, I don't know that they knew that she would become a luminary at that point, because this was right at the beginning of her career. They, um, the problem is, these were just two college professors. They didn't have a lot of money. And, of course, they lost out on the original patent of, the, uh, of their um, ENIAC, and, and edvac and and so they um they, they didn't have much money and they, they didn't get another contract nbs gave them one contract that they couldn't get another contract so they're running out of cash so unfortunately they had to sell their company along with all the computer patents that they got after they left the moore school of engineering they had this they sold all they sold the company off all the patents to remington ram now, Marchley worked for, for Remington and later for Sperry, which, which bought Remington Ram for about, for about uh, nine years. Uh, and, uh, and then he finally left. In 1959, he left uh, Sperry, Rand, as it became. So when, when Sperry bought Remington Rand, it became Sperry Rand. So he bought, he left Sperry Rand and he started Marchley Associates. And one of one of the big achievements of Mochley Associates was the development of the critical path method for providing automated construction scheduling. So if you ever, if you ever heard about a project management, you, you, you create a critical path, and that is the, the path which defines the timeline on the project. And the only way to shorten the project is to shorten the critical path. So he developed the critical path method for doing construction scheduling. Modulay also set up a, a consulting organization, Data Trends, and, uh, in 1967, and he worked as a consultant to Sperry Univac from uh, 1973 until 1980. So he continued to consult with them even after he left. Modulay retired to the uh, quiet suburb of Philadelphia, Ambler, Pennsylvania. He died, of, he died January 8th, 1980, of complications from an infection. In 2002... He was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Uh, so there is everything you need to know about John William Motchley, the uh, co-developer, and actually he invented the concept of the general first general purpose electronic digital computer. Hope you were paying attention because coming up you can win a free prize by uh, gaining us and showing us your knowledge here on Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network. 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and now in the uh, vast southwestern listing audience south of D.C., 107.7 FM HD2 in Loudoun County, catches on 104.5 FM. Learn about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Russ. Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I just love this audience. (laughs) Yeah. But but this is not simply a radio show, as I'm going to remind them very shortly. This is a classroom of the airways. Mm-hmm. And I want to see whether they have been listening. We do that with a pop quiz. To get, if they get the right answer to the pop quiz, they'll get two tickets to fine dining when they, our dining rooms open after the pandemic. And they'll also receive an A-plus for today's show. I, I now, really early, am interested in the yes, A-plus, really. Yeah, that, that's valuable. Uh-huh. You know, get a transcript, everything. Very, <laughs> it's probably a collector's <laughs> item. Will you sign now, it? Oh, Earlier in the show, I talked about John William Moxley. He, of course, is the, the, the co-developer of the first general-purpose electronic digital computer. Now, when he was young, he earned money doing something uh, for, his, uh, for his neighbors. What might that have been? If you know the answer to today's question, now's your chance to win something. Pick up the phone, give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're enjoying the winter solitude east of Pliedel Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you've forgotten to pay your terrestrial electricity bill in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized hourly with an anodized metal baton. 877-9-3639-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. There he goes, picking on uh, Canada again. I know, that is just terrible. That is terrible. You Let's talk outraged. about the mistake of the week. Okay. The lost Bitcoin password. Stefan Thomas, a German programmer based in San Francisco, forgot a password that would allow him to access 7,002 bitcoins that could be worth, as of today, about 
$220 million. Yikes. <laughs> now, the password would allow Thomas to unlock a small hard drive called the Iron Key that he put them in there just to make certain they would be secure. And the Iron Key holds the keys to the digital wallet that contains the 7,002 bitcoins. Now, Thomas lost the paper where he wrote down the password to the iron key long ago. Now, the way this is set up, you only have so many attempts at unlocking it, and then it just totally encrypts the data so it can never be reached. He only has two more attempts of a failed, two more attempts to uh, try to unlock it, and then it's gone forever. Now, he actually got this cryptocurrency back in 2011. He lived in Switzerland, and he made an anima animated video explaining what is Bitcoin. And, you know, and then, uh, you know, apparently people sent him Bitcoins. Back then, they, they, they weren't worth very much. So he, he, he collected these Bitcoins as a result of that uh, thing. And, uh, and, and so he, um, but, but it wasn't a big deal in 2011, but it's a big deal now because Bitcoin has gone through the roof. Now, Thomas is not the only one who's lost his money in this way. Of the existing 18.5 million Bitcoins, about 20% of them believed to be lost or in stranded wallets, like this one. <laughs> stranded wallet. <laughs> and those 20% of the Bitcoins that are lost or in stranded wallets are worth $140 billion. Holy <laughs> so, cow. So, uh, so Stefan Thomas is not the only guy. So Stefan, I hope you can find that document or I hope you can have a dream and figure out the password. We do not have a winner yet. If you would, please, doctor, ask the question once again. Okay. Earlier in the show, I talked about John William Motchley. He, of course, uh, developed the first general purpose electronic computer. Now, he was interested in science and in electricity, and he was known to take odd jobs with his neighbors, uh, you know, to earn a little extra money. What kind of odd jobs would he be taking with his neighbors? And the number to call is 877-936-9333. Now plot on, e please. E Elon Musk tells his followers to use the Signal messaging app. Now, the encrypted messaging app, Signal, has just seen a huge boost in users after Tes Tesla CEO Elon Musk tweeted out that his followers should use the service. Now, there was such a, a rush to download the Signal uh, messaging app that they basically had, uh, had trouble sending out verification codes for a while with that initial push, but now they've managed to solve that problem. Now, the reason that Musk tweeted this is that uh, they want, it was only a two-word tweet, use Signal. You see, Signal is a it's an encrypted messaging app. It's point-to-point -point encrypted, so nobody in the middle can see what your message is. And it turns out that WhatsApp uses the Signal protocol. But Facebook recently changed the privacy standards on WhatsApp, and they said uh, that all the data that they gather in WhatsApp is going to be passed and shared with Facebook. And there was a list of all the data that WhatsApp collects. It was enormous. And people are up in arms over this. So Elon Musk said, look, why would you stick with Facebook 
Facebook and use WhatsApp, use Signal. FaceApp uses the, uses the encryption standard developed by Signal. But the good thing with Signal, they're a nonprofit corporation. They're not about trying to make money on your data. And so they're trying to do something that's good. And so a lot of people are switching over to Signal. Now, Facebook, in response to this big hubbub, they have delayed the, uh, that, that switch over on sharing data with Facebook. And they're saying, well, really, we don't share that much data. It's not that big of a deal, but, but nobody believes them. And, uh, you know, because Facebook is a business focused on mining people's data and making money on your data, whereas Signal is a nonprofit foundation. And it's, and it, it's even gone as far as to accept venture capital funding to prevent financial profit from driving its focus. Well, Doc, we don't have a winner yet, so would you please ask the question again? We'll go to break and come back and do observations from the bunker, because I know you've got to get into the right mental space for that. I certainly do. Yeah, yes. earlier in the show, I talked about William Muchley, John William Muchley. He, of course, uh, was co-developer of the first general-purpose electronic digital computer. What kind of work did he have? What kind of work did he do for his neighbors to make money that sort of aligned with his interests? And here's a clue. Dr. Schertz has done the same thing, and here's the number to call. 877-936-9333. It is Saturday morning, and you are listening to Tech Talk Radio. This is Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, southwest of D.C. Catch us on 1077 FM HD 2 or in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Find out more about what's happening at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. New year, new door? I think not. Why, yes, indeed. No, this week i tell you down in the bunker i've been sort of pondering the power of the tech overlords yeah now these are the people that run amazon that run google that run apple that run twitter the tech overlords it seems like 
they can do whatever they want. They can control our communication channels in any way they want. And so I started thinking about who bears responsibility for the real world consequences of technology. And this particular question has been made more complicated because of legislation that was uh, passed decades ago, and actually in 1966, that provides absolute immunity for these platforms for any kind of liability for actions that they might take. This, of course, is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It was written before Facebook or YouTube or Twitter even existed. And there were just basically bulletin boards that were up there, and people would just post things on bulletin boards. And it was designed to shield the bulletin board platforms from, you know, from being sued for what somebody might post. And uh, the one sentence has been, uh, and so the sentence that was in the leg legislation was says this, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So they, these platforms will not be considered, Bill will be, will be treated as a publisher. That one word in there, provider, has been interpreted as including social media platforms and for all the content that they host. Now, in theory, Section 230 was written to give the internet boom, internet room to flourish without fear of lawsuits. But what has happened with these tech overlords, they're basically invincible. Nobody can sue them for whatever they do. They can do whatever they want, and nobody has anything because they've got blanket immunity from Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Now, many people on both sides of the aisle think this needs to be changed because it is dangerous because they might go after your buddy. They might go after you today, but they're going to go after your buddy tomorrow. Or So eventually somebody's going to be in their sights who crosses them, and you don't know who that's going to be. So it's time, I believe, to regulate big tech, get rid of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act so that they can be held accountable for actions they take. And maybe that will help regularize the situation. All right, Doc, we have somebody who'd like to play the game. Okay. Let us go to line one, and this is MC calling from Silver Spring. Good morning, MC. How are you? Oh, all is well, Jim. Good. Doc? All right. Doc, go ahead and ask yes. the question, please. Early in the show, I talked about John William Motchley. He was a co-developer of the first general purpose electronic computer. What did he do for his families when he was growing up as a lot of jobs? Yeah, he picks uh, electrical jobs for his neighbors. There you go. Excellent. Oh, very good. Very Perfect. good work there, MC. Hang on a second and get your information, and we'll send you back to Andrew for that. Doc, I think because of the time, we just keep it here, and you just continue talking Let's, on, because we I are all about content. 100%. Tim Berners-Lee, of course, who is the, uh, uh, the man who invented the World Wide Web, he invented the browser, is trying to tackle internet privacy. He's getting at this issue that Elon Musk talked about, you know, these companies like Facebook and Twitter and all just selling your data. So that's dangerous. This, this topic, by the way, was suggested by Bob in Maryland, and um, I, th I thought it was really good. So Tim Berners-Lee has started a new company, a startup called Inrupt. Inrupt, I-N-R-U-P-T, Inrupt. His goal is to fix some of the problems that have disrupted the internet in our time. 
I mean, huge corporations like Facebook and Twitter are operating closed platforms. And as such, he argues, the user has lost control. In the beginning, the internet was powerful because the user had absolute control. But these guys have so much power on these closed platforms that the user is like a victim of the tech overlords. So Berners-Lee plan is to take back the data that people have so that they can keep it private, so they control their data. He thinks that it's important for people to keep their own data in their own hands, and they only decide who should be able to see it. So the goal of Inrup is to develop a single sign-on service where personal data is stored in pods. That's personal online data storage and controlled by the individual user. Now, he got this idea. He, had a, he, had a, he actually had a pilot program with the National Health Service the, and the BBC and the government services in, Fl in Flanders where they were testing it. And what they were doing there, they were, use, they were basically dealing with medical data so people could store their medical data privately. I mean, that's an issue. You don't want somebody to know all the diseases that you've got. So they created pods for medical data. And this was extremely successful way to control access to your private data. So then Tim Berners-Lee got the idea. He says, well, the application could, could be far broader than just medical data. We could spread it across the entire internet. So you can see what would happen if everybody would, say, log on to Facebook with pods, uh, uh, that would keep all their personal data away from, uh, from Facebook, and Facebook would not be able to make money on your data. So I actually hope he's successful at this, uh, at, at this new endeavor, because I think, I think the tech overlords have crossed the line and I think it's time to bring them back in line. Now, he's hoping that he can uh, launch this thing over the next few years. And if it gets traction, uh, I think we could do something about this privacy issue. Now, let's talk about MI, this MIT professor that got charged for hiding work that he did for China. He's a prof professor at the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's charged with hiding work that he did for the Chinese government. This is kind of a problem that we've had with uh, research in our institutions as China is trying to basically steal intellectual property from the U.S. His name was Gang Chen, 56. He's arrested by federal agents at his home in Cambridge on charges that included wire fraud. While working for MIT, Chang entered into, entered into undisclosed contracts and held appointments with Chinese entities, including acting as an overseas expert for the Chinese government at the request of the People's Republic of China Consulate Office in New York. Now, Chen did not disclose these connections to China, as was required in the federal grant applications process. Because what he did, his group collected from all of these foreign activities, $29 million in foreign dollars, uh, including uh, much money from the Chinese government. But this was the problem. He also got $19 million from U.S. federal agencies for his work at MIT since 2013. So he was funded by the federal government to do research for the U.S. government and Without telling the U.S. government that he had these other contracts, he was also doing work and sharing the results of his research 
with other countries, including China. And uh, the government said it's okay to work for other countries, but it's not okay to lie about it. Now, Chen's attorney said the professor loves the U.S. and looks forward to vigorously defending all of the allocations. MIT said it's deeply distressed. They believe that the integrity of research is a fundamental responsibility that, that they take seriously, and they hope to they hope to mend fences with the federal government. Now, Wikipedia celebrates its 20th birthday. Wow. On January 15th. It was 20 years old. That's just yesterday. And it was founded January 15th, 2001 by Jimmy Wales, an American-British entrepreneur. It's, uh, it's, it's now the seventh most, pop, seventh most popular site. It's got more than 55 million articles. Uh, and it's consulted 15 billion times a month. The website started in English, but within two months, it had already launched German and Swedish. It now is available in 309 languages. Mm. You can imagine. In 2006, Wales set the goal of having 100,000 entries in Wikipedia for every language with more than 1 million speakers in every language that has more than 1 million speakers. Now, he recognized that Wikipedia is still 20 years from achieving that goal. Now, Wikipedia is a nonprofit, uh, so uh, really, Jimmy Wales doesn't make money from it. Um, uh, unlike, and it's an outlier because it's a nonprofit, it's unlike Google and Facebook were in it for the bucks. Yep. I mean, uh, Wikipedia harkens back to the days when we had open source and we wanted to give back to the world for a better place, you know, before this greedy profit motive came in to sort of create these tech overlords. Now, Wikipedia founder Jimmy Wells acknowledges that in the beginning, he was afraid somebody else would would, would create an, an online collaborative encyclopedia before he did. So he rushed to get it out. Now, Wikipedia is all driven by volunteers. And each language is built up independently. They just don't translate articles from one to another. They actually build them up they, they build them up independently, and contributions are from non-experts. Listen, uh, I love Wikipedia. I've contributed to it, and I think it's a great resource. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And go check out the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu, and tell them that you heard about all of their programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.